This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am chatting with Patty Callahan about Once Upon a Wardrobe. Patty is the New York Times, USA Today, and Globe and Mail bestselling novelist of 15 novels. A recipient of the Harper Lee Distinguished Writer of the Year, the Christie Book of the Year, and the Alabama Literary Association Book of the Year, Patty is the co-founder and co-host of the popular web series and podcast, Friends in Fiction. Once Upon a Wardrobe is one of my top reads of the year. I truly love this story so much. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Patty. How are you today? Oh, I'm awesome. I always love coming here to talk to you, Cindy. I am so excited to have you back on again because I absolutely loved our conversation with Surviving Savannah, and I loved that book, and I love Once Upon a Wardrobe even more, if that's possible, so I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, thank you. You know that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Well, why don't we start with you talking a little bit about what Once Upon a Wardrobe is about? I would love to. I loved writing this book, and I love talking about this book. I wrote it, most of it, during the lockdown in March of 2020. I didn't write the whole book in March, but that's when I sat down to really start working on this. And I had had some notes, and I had begun the book, but I hadn't really dove deep into it until then. And I can say this, it was my touch point when it felt like the rest of the world was burning down. I knew that every day I could spend some time with this little boy named George and his sister named Megs and C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney. So what this story is about is that it is the year 1950. We are in Worcester, England and Oxford, England. There is a little boy named George and he has an older sister named Megs. George is ill. And Megs is a math and physics genius. And she goes to Oxford University, one of the all-women colleges, Somerset. Well, George is obsessed with a book because in October of 1950, a brand new book burst onto the scene. It was called The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And George couldn't stop reading it. He would hide in his wardrobe and hope that the back would fall out and he could walk into Narnia. So when his sister came home one weekend for school, he said to her, I know that the man who wrote this book teaches at your university, and I need you to find him, and I need you to ask him, where did Narnia come from? And she says, that's absurd. It's imagination. It's made up. It's a story. And yet she does it because she loves her little brother so much. She tracks down C.S. Lewis and she asks him, where did Narnia come from? My brother needs to know. And he doesn't answer her the way you think he might. He answers her with stories from his life. Sad stories, light stories, bright stories, dark stories. And George and Megs set off on an adventure. I loved absolutely every page of this book, and I have so many questions. 
I'm here for them. Let's go. Well, first, I know you've written a little bit about C.S. Lewis in the past, and I am planning to pick that book up very soon, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Yes. Is that when you first became interested in those stories? Did you grow up loving The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? How did you first decide to write about C.S. Lewis at all? I have been reading Lewis all of my life. My dad was a pastor, and so our house was covered in C.S. Lewis books. And I was a bookworm, and I would have read a cereal box. So I would grab books off the shelf, and I read the screw tape letters when I was very young, probably too young to read it. And from that moment on, I had been a Lewis reader. And of course, in my adolescent years, I fell through the wardrobe door of Narnia. And it has, like most people, it has become, in many ways, part of our consciousness, not just mine. But it is very rare, if at ever, do we run into someone who has never heard of Narnia, even if they've never read it, or doesn't know who Aslan is or the White Witch. It is one of those stories that has entered our collective consciousness. And I've always been curious about that, about how a story does that and why a story does that. But that's not what I was thinking about when I was writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis. That is the story about C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman. And it is told from her point of view in the first person. And yet, when I was doing my research for that novel, I could see all these little places, little breadcrumbs almost, in Lewis's life that I again saw in Narnia. And I don't think I consciously thought about that or consciously thought, oh, I'm going to take notes on that because I'm going to write a book about that. It was one of those things I was very curious about and really noticed. And when the idea came to me for this novel, a lot of the research, not all of it, but a lot of it had already been done because of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. So I pulled out what I thought were the seven most seminal events in Lewis's life that you can see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there are plenty of nonfiction books about people analyzing and logistically listing the things that they believe Lewis meant when he wrote Narnia. And I felt like these moments in his life were better told in story than in logical lists. And I know that as an author, I get asked a lot, where do your ideas come from? And there's some things we can point to. Somebody said this, or I read that article, or I heard this story. But there are large swaths of story that can't be explained. There are large swaths of story that that are ineffable. And I wanted to show that although we can point to these things in Lewis's life, the story is something greater in its own form. And I also think where I was very excited to pick this book up and read it and learn more, that I would not be inclined to pick up other nonfiction books just with people writing probably somewhat dryly about where Narnia, they thought Narnia came from. And I think it's difficult too, Cindy, because to tell someone what Lewis meant, to say this is exactly what he meant, we don't know that. There are things we can point to that he said, but to assume 
that he meant this or that. It seems to me to be extrapolating from sources that that aren't reliable. So for me, I would like to see it in a story not written as fact. This is what Lewis meant when he made Aslan. Unless Lewis himself said it, I don't need it written as a logical list. I agree with that completely. And I just loved the format that you used. And I loved the contrast between George and Meg's. And I'm so much more like Meg's, but I, over time, you know, reading so much and really trying to dive into stories and delve into what they mean. I've tried to not be so black and white and kind of tap more into the creative side of it. But I just, I loved the combination because she would come back and be like, he didn't really answer the question, but he told me this story. And She'd tell it to George, and then George would say, well, he absolutely answered the question, you know? And I just thought right. it was such a great contrast. And I was just curious how that came about for you. How that came about is that I was having trouble reconciling us, the facts of Lewis's life, with a story. Because what started this story was an eight-year-old's question, where did Narnia come from? And I didn't want to move from this innocence of this eight-year-old who's very ill, who needs to know in many ways where Narnia came from, to Lewis's logical tellings. And so what I finally decided after a long time of thinking about it, and probably a thousand miles of taking walks, was that we didn't want to hear Lewis tell the story. You learn very quickly, this is not a spoiler, but what... Megs does is write, writes down what Lewis tells her, brings it home to her brother, and we see the story from an eight-year-old's eyes. So it's a little bit more magical, a little bit more active. It's not exactly what Lewis said. So the story itself, which is completely factual, everything from his life that is in this book is factual. So we go from these factual tellings that we don't hear We know Megs writes them down and she reads them to George, but we see them from George's point of view. So I take these stories and I separate us by three from them, three steps away and from an eight-year-old's eyes. And I just loved that because I loved the way George steps into the story and how he describes it to Megs, how he actually kind of inserts himself into the story and feels like he's living it. And I just loved that and how he wanted to spend time in the wardrobe. She finds him, I think, hopefully that's not a spoiler, in the wardrobe at one point. No, that's not a spoiler. (laughs) I was like, if it is, I can eliminate that. And I love that they started with Once Upon a Wardrobe, that you had the two of them come up with the way each story would start. I just felt it was so incredibly creative. And I was just, I mean, kudos to you to come up with this story. Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was an outgrowth of a great love for Narnia and for the power of story and for Lewis and for this constant, what would I call it, this constant reconciling that I'm always trying to do between logic and imagination. This, this idea that we don't have to live in an either or, that we can exist in an and both. And it's a struggle for me too. And so this was a love letter to the idea of being able to dwell in the logical and in the wildly and sacred imaginative at the same time. Well, and you clearly did a lot of research 
And I just felt like that brought everything to life. It brought kilns. Is that how you say the name of where they lived? Yes, the kilns. The kilns. I felt like I could just see it and I could see Meg's just sitting outside waiting. I felt like I could see George as he was listening to the stories. I mean, I just felt it was so beautifully descriptive. And I just wondered if that was something that you really set out to do or if it just came naturally as you were writing. Wow, that's a great question. And I'm going to go back to the end both. I think it's a little bit of both. When when I was writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I visited the Kilns and Oxford. And everywhere you read about in Once Upon a Wardrobe, except for Worcester, England, which I was headed to when the world shut down, I visited. I walked in those footsteps. You read about Meg standing on Maudlin Bridge when Pedrick comes to say hello. You read about the backyard of the kilns. You read about the inside of the house where Lewis and Warney lived. You read about the office where Lewis worked, his rooms, they are called. And I visited and have been to all of those places. And so the answer is both because I did the research and purposefully found the details. And yet it also just arose when I wrote the story because I had been there, touched it, felt it, smelled it, imbued myself in it. So it's a little bit of both, but it was very purposeful for me that I go to those places. So when I wrote about them, you'd feel like you went to those places. I think that makes such a difference. And I can usually tell when that has occurred. You know, you can tell with the way that author is describing that they literally have looked at whatever it is and are able to then describe it effectively. So his rooms are where you can tour them today. I mean, I don't know about right now in the middle of the pandemic, but generally they're open to the public. Yes. Yes. And I think they opened back up last week. I think I got an email that says they're opened back up. So yes, every single one of those places you had to make reservations or or call to get a tour, but I wasn't anyone special. I just said, I I need to see these places and signed up and, and took tours of them and spent my time there. And I actually went back there after I wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis and again visited those places as the fin- the author who had finished a novel about Lewis's wife. And, and I walked into the living room at the Kilns and my book was sitting on the, the book I wrote was sitting on the table next to the couch in the common room. And I was like, wow. Did you shriek? I would have been like, oh my gosh. (laughs) I think I cried. I would have. I understand that. That's amazing. And I've heard so many wonderful things about that book. So like I said, it's on my list and I'm going to get to it soon. I want to finish rereading Once Upon a Wardrobe because I just loved it so much the first time. And I know there are probably details that kind of working my way through it decently quick, though I did make myself slow down because I loved it so much. But still, there'll be additional details that I can pick up as I reread it. Thank you. I love that book. I mean, and it, and and Wardrobe, Once Upon a Wardrobe is, is not a sequel in any way. In fact, Lewis had not even met Joy Davidman in the years that you read about in Once Upon a Wardrobe. So it is in no way a sequel or a prequel, but it is definitely an outgrowth of writing that novel. 
I guess that's what I was just thinking. I realize they're unrelated in terms of having to read one in a particular order, but I've just heard so many good things about that book for years. And because they're both about similar subject matter, I thought it'd be fun to go back and read it. They're tied together. They would make, you are very right in, in talking about it that way, because what I see them as is companions, companion pieces of his life. That's a great way to look at it. And I like that. It makes me think, okay, there's got to be some good way to, to write something about that or something fun to tie them together. Yes. I, I consider them companions. What I also love is that C.S. Lewis's stepson, Joy's son, wrote a letter in the back of Once Upon a Wardrobe. Can you tell me how all that came about? Wow. When he sent that letter, I didn't even share it for about two days because for a little while, I wanted it to be all mine, right? I wanted this to be something I held onto. I wanted it. I wanted to savor it because if eight years ago or seven years ago, when I first started researching Joy Davidman, if someone had told me that her son and I would be dear friends when he lives in Malta, it's not like he lives in Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, right. But we grew into a really dear and respectful friendship because I respected and loved his mother. I didn't write about her for sensationalism or try to make something use her in a certain way. I wrote that novel out of great respect and admiration for her. And he could tell that when he read it. And so we've just developed a very respectful and kind friendship. And when I wrote this book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, I knew that, again, I would need permission from the C.S. Lewis company because I quote Lewis in the book very often. A lot of the things that Lewis says in my novel are things he really said. And if you are going to do that, you need permissions. So I had to contact him again and ask for permissions. And he read the novel and he loved it. And I said, can you give it a little blurb? You know how that terrible thing authors have to do where they ask for blurbs. And instead of a blurb, he wrote that beautiful, beautiful letter. It is beautiful. When I got to the end and then I read that letter, I thought, oh my gosh, you must have thought this is just such a gift. It, it is. Like I said, I kind of, part of me wanted to keep it all for myself. But at the same time, it, it's been a great joy to share it with other people. Absolutely. The other exciting thing about Once Upon a Wardrobe is it is the first book in a new Harper imprint called Harper Muse. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm really honored and excited and feel very special because Once Upon a Wardrobe is the debut and launch novel for the new HarperCollins Harper Muse line. It's the first adult fiction imprint under one of their other imprints called HarperCollins Focus. So HarperCollins Focus is an imprint at HarperCollins and they did a lot of nonfiction. They did a lot of self-help. They did some business books, but they didn't have a fiction line. And that exact imprint or line of Harper was doing so well that they wanted a fiction line. So they, whenever you start a new imprint, you need to have a general focus from what I'm told. So their focus and their emphasis is on historical 
Southern and women's fiction. And the tagline, I believe, is that they want to offer hope and encouragement. And the little line under their logo says, novels that are illuminating heart, illuminating minds, and captivating hearts through story. And I really, I loved their mission. I love why they started the line. I love that they want novels that offer hope and encouragement and that they really have shown a spotlight on those kinds of stories. And they have some amazing authors coming out in the next few months. They have Ariel Lahan and Susan Meisner and Christina McMorris are co-writing a novel, a historical novel together for them. One of my favorite authors, Catherine Ray, has a book called The London House coming out in November from them. They have an author, I believe she's from Australia, named Taya Cooper. She has one called The Cartographer's Secret. They have Lauren Denton. They have some really great novels coming out in their new imprint, starting with Once Upon a Wardrobe. And I have been paying attention ever since I learned about yours coming out as their inaugural book. And I have seen some of the people you just mentioned, and I feel like there are one or two others that caught my attention. So I'm just so excited for you. And what a wonderful tagline for Harper Muse. I love that. I know. I th- the tagline was so thoughtful that I knew that it wasn't a, let's just try this. That it, it was so well thought out, illuminating minds and captivating hearts through story. And it just nailed the reason I write, the reason most of us write. So I, I loved that. I'm excited for it. I think they're doing an amazing job and, you know, HarperCollins is, is wonderful. And I think this line has really started some amazing new authors in their new line. So, yes. And that's so exciting that you're launching it. I know. I'm very, I'm very honored. Well, what about the title and the cover? You know how much I love to talk about those. And did you always know it would be Once Upon a Wardrobe? No, I didn't. That title came to me after I sold it, to be honest. It was when I first started writing it, it was just called The Wardrobe. And that was my working title. And then I would have to look back for all the titles. And then for a long while, it was just called Into the Wardrobe. But Into the Wardrobe is the title of my favorite nonfiction book about Narnia by a man named David Downing, who is the head of the Wade Center at Wheaton College outside Chicago, Illinois. And he has written a nonfiction book called Into the Wardrobe. So I knew it couldn't be titled Into the Wardrobe. So I was playing with it and we, we played with other titles like just Megs and George or, you know, Jack's Life, all kinds of different titles. And there came an afternoon when I had a drive ahead of me and the title was making me crazy. And it was time to nail down a title. And I said, I'm going to turn off the radio and I'm going to drive in silence until I know what the title is. And I just kept, I asked myself, what is it really, really about? And it is about story. It is about the power of story. It is about the ineffable quality of stories. It is about how we are captured from the moment someone says once upon a time. And it just, boom. Once Upon a Wardrobe, flew into my head and stuck there. Well, I'm so glad because I think it's the perfect title. Thank you. What about the cover? How did it come about? 
So as usual, there were many, many covers. And what we didn't want to lean too hard into was Narnia. We didn't want a girl in the woods with a lamppost. Because although Narnia is a powerful force behind the story, the story is about a young boy named George, his sister named Megs, and their family in a small stone cottage in Worcester. And so I had to really think, because it was natural to to lean towards just putting her in the woods or having a lantern. And yet she goes to Oxford. And Oxford as a place is a very storybook place. So one of the covers they sent me looks very much like the cover you see right now, except in the background was something different. It was kind of a blurry building. And I said, can we have that image with a little bit more snow and put Maudlin, which is the college where Lewis teaches, in the background? Because it looks like a castle. And this is what they came up with. And I love it so much. And did they always have the lion at the bottom? Because I love that too, with the lines and then the lion and then the more lines under the title. Oh, thank you. I love it too. I love it so much. And that wasn't there originally. And I love the font and the way that the dot is in the A and in the O. So it looks like it's part of the snowflakes, but it's not. It's part of the and the E. So it looks like snow, but it's actually part of the actual font, which I'm a font guru. So I had to get the name of the font. It is called Aurora. I just love how the lion went with the entire font and feels very magical in storytelling. I agree. And I think the whole cover is so magical. You just feel like you're right there. It just definitely evokes the story. But like you said, doesn't make you think of Narnia. It makes you think of all of it. And I just love that. And the UK kept this cover and Canada gave it a different cover. If you go to my website, you can see the Canadian cover. And I just got my Dutch cover and it's really beautiful too. So it's it's interesting to see different people's takes on what the story is. The Canadian cover, they leaned very much into the Narnia theme. And they have a young girl standing in front of a wardrobe. And I know. And then the Dutch cover has a girl, a woman, walking through the snow. And there's a lantern. And there's this barely visible kind of silhouette of a lion in the background. Oh, I can't wait to look all of these up. Yeah, they're all beautiful. I love every single one of them. Well, it is interesting to see how different people interpret stories and then also what they think is going to appeal to a certain market. Yes, yes. I always find that kind of fascinating. And and I don't always buy into their explanation why. Right. I just think whoever <laughs> picked it was like, I like that one. Exactly. So you can choose something you love. I don't care if it's a person or a book cover or a story, and then you can find the reasons you love it, but they, they that doesn't always, you're like, yeah, okay. It is. It's very interesting to see how all of that plays out sometimes, but I'm excited that the UK and the US are the same because I think sometimes it's very confusing when they're not. So that's wonderful. Uh, you know, and Mrs. Lewis, they weren't the same. And I, I mean, frankly, loved the US cover better than the UK cover. But their, their explanation to me was that their sensibilities are different over there. But this time, they were the same. <laughs> their sensibilities now line up. That's so funny. 
Well, what about what you're working on next? Oh, wow. What I'm working on next is getting Once Upon a Wardrobe into the world. This is my, we talked about this off air before we came on, and and this has been my second novel out in a calendar year. And then I also had two novellas out in this calendar year. I had Wild Swan, which was an Audible original, and was a novella about Florence Nightingale. And then I had a short story, which was more like a novella, in a book called Reunion Beach, which is a group of stories written to honor Dorothea Benton Frank. (laughs) Essentially, with those four things out this year, what I'm working on right now is getting my feet back under me. Well, and you've forgotten the very small group, Friends in Fiction, which I'm sure takes up none of your time. <laughs> we we had a long call today and we were like, how did this turn into a full-time job? Literally, this has turned. So we're trying to now that the world's opening up a little bit. I am going on tour for Once Upon a Wardrobe. I haven't been on tour since, what, January of 2020. So none of us have. And so now that the world is opening up, Friends in fiction is too important to all of us to abandon just because the world is opening up. This incredible community has been built and we love it. So how do we now navigate that? So yes, that's been on the table too. And you all did a few in-person events. Did I see that? Did I make that up? We did. We did Christy Woodson Harvey, who is one of us, one of the co-hosts and cohorts and co-founders lives in Beaufort, North Carolina, and they had a big fundraiser historic preservation weekend. And we went out there and did three or four events as a group out there. But that's, we will be doing more. But for now, that was the first official all together friends and fiction. We have another one coming in January at Wild Dunes. But otherwise, three of us, Mary Kay Andrews, Christy Woodson Harvey, and I all have books coming out in the fall. Christy and Mary Kay's are Christmas books and mine's a novel. So we're all back on the road as individuals in the fall. And yet we are going to be together for, I think, six events scattered throughout the South because we are a team. And although we all have books out separately, it is as always, more fun to do things together. Well, it's been the most wonderful group, and I have just loved participating in the things that I have participated in, and you've just brought so many people together. Oh, thank you. And you've done the same thing, and I know you feel this same way, this very kind of field of dreams way where you do what you love, you build it, and they come. And we built this Facebook group so we The only reason we built it was originally was so that we'd have a place to broadcast our shows on Wednesday nights. But now it's 50,000 people strong and it's a community that is way bigger than who we are. It is a community of readers and book lovers who are talking to each other. Sometimes they barely notice us. (laughs) You know, like we will see a post that's like, hey, have you ever heard of Patty Callahan's books? And we're like, hello. You're like, I have. I hear they're quite good. I'm a founder. Hello. See the picture on the top of the page? That's hilarious. Yes, (laughs) it is. 
I've had a number of people tell me, oh, I, I learned about your podcast in Friends in Fiction. And I'm like, oh, that's Aww. so funny. I wonder how. But a lot of times, I guess people have just mentioned it, you know, the interview or another person mentions it to somebody in the comments. And I was like, oh, I love that. So Yes. And, and it's so fun to see, you know, we'll have a guest that we love, an author, and you just assume it's a big enough name that everybody's been reading them. You know, say Chris Bajalian, for example, one of my favorite authors out there, and or Paula McLean, The Paris Wife, you know, these huge names. And then you'll see all these comments. I have never read her. I'm so happy I discovered this author. I'm like, what? Hello. So it, it, it's, been, it's been amazing. It really has. And I know you feel the same way about what you do. I do. I just love when things like that happen, you know, when people can bond with love of books and then it becomes a big community. It just, I think it's wonderful. Well, before we wrap up, would you like to tell me what you've read recently that you really liked, Patty? Cindy, what have I read recently that I really like so much? Because I've been reading so much because not only am I reading for the guests I host, because we share hosting duties, but books to blurb, books I love. So some of my favorites, I'm just going to stick to the past couple months. Definitely Kristen Harmel's new one, The Forest of Vanishing Stars. I've loved a book called We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker that came out a few months ago, and it was probably one of my favorite books of the fall. I'm reading When Ghosts Come Home by Wiley Cash. When Ghosts Come Home, it's just, it's it's one of his favorites, my favorites of his that he's written, and I'm a big Wiley Cash fan. There is a debut coming out in September that I'm gaga over by a woman named Paige Crutcher, and it is called The Orphan Witch. That's enough. I could keep going. <laughs> and you'd be like, and then title number 14. <laughs> I know, exactly. Patty, you're done. Stop. No, not at all. I could listen all day because I love it. I love to either see if it's something that I've read or something that I'll want to read. What's the last one about Paige Crutcher's debut? The Orphan Witch is about, it's about a young woman who doesn't understand these powers she has and because nobody has told her why she has them. And she ends up on this small fictional, but very cool island off the coast of North Carolina that has a spell on it. And she starts to discover who she really is. And it's, it's just really very Alice Hoffman, very magical. I just loved it. Well, Patty, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I always love, love, love chatting with you. I love talking to you too, Cindy. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. 
Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.